Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is a writer for The Step Back, the co-host of Locked on Heat, and someone I've wanted to have on this podcast for a long time. It's David Rammel. How are you doing, man? I am doing great, man. I'm so glad to be able to to talk about writing and the writing process. So this is a, a great opportunity, and I, I'm glad that you invited me on. Yeah, man. I, I have this list in my head, and I, I've always had it since I started uh, this podcast. And even before this podcast, I had a few podcasts where um, I tried to get them up and going, and I just like never was really consistent with it. Um, but this one, just because of the idea uh, behind it and the premise behind it, it's been easier to keep going. And I have this huge list of people in my head that I want on the podcast and like I've had since day one and um, you've been on there. So I'm glad I can finally get you on. And there's, there's just so many. So it's exciting to finally, uh, you know, finally get to talk to someone you've wanted to have on a podcast for a while. Well, I'm honored. I hope I can do a good job. And, uh, you know, again, I'm, I think writers tend to love talking about what they do. So this is a, a natural fit. And again, I, I am very honored and I'm glad to be able to talk about something that I wrote recently. Yeah, definitely. Um, and right before we get to that, I did want to just a quick as a quick aside, um, Dwayne Wade did just announce that he is returning to Miami for one last dance, as he puts it. Um <laughs> Are you excited about that? Are you happy that yes. he's coming back? Or are you were you like, oh well, we could have been, we would have been fine with Sixers game two and that memory. But um, no, are you are you happy he's coming back? I, I was I was actually um, I leaned towards thinking that he was going to retire just because at his age and having accomplished everything he already has. I was pretty sure that he was already set up for retirement, the opportunity to hang out with his family, to watch his kids grow up, the things that he talked about in that 10-minute video that he released to announce he was coming back. So I I was pretty sure he was going to retire. And then when I got a chance to talk to him in August, that kind of perception changed a little bit. It seemed like he was more inclined to coming back. And so, you know, obviously he did. Um, and, And so from that perspective, I am very happy to see him return. Like, I'm, I'm a little bit more... Uh, less biased, you know, being a quote unquote media person now and not necessarily as much of a fan as I used to be, mm-hmm. but just the chance to see him and, and kind of see one more year, you know, I think this will be the kind of closure that his Hall of Fame career deserves in Miami. So as far as that's concerned, absolutely, it's going to be great to see him there. I'm not so worried about what happens on the floor because, you know, he is older. He's not as explosive as he once was. And so, you know, he'll contribute in some ways. And it's not like this team is realistically contending for a title anyway. So it's more about just kind of appreciating the moment. And, and, you know, 82 games plus whatever postseason games they might be able to tack on on top of that. uh, And seeing Wade contribute at a semi-regular basis, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was pretty excited when he came back. He's one of the players that helped get me into the game. I always talk about how LeBron is the guy that really brought me into loving NBA basketball, but Wade was right there, and when they teamed up, I was in the midst of high school, and it was a huge deal for me, and I was freaking out. Um, (laughs) The flying death machine, I'll never forget it. Um, So just seeing him come back for one more year is cool, just because, I I don't know, the players I love to see, I love to see them play, and even when they're older, I don't don't mind that. It's That's how the game works. That's how life works. So um, I'm glad he's coming back for one more run. Uh, I think it'll be cool. And there should be there should be one or two Wade moments in there somewhere. I think it'll happen, for sure. And it's it's always interesting to see you know how younger players kind of remember, or so younger fans kind of remember Wade's career. Like 
if you're if you're saying that you kind of watched him during that big three era, as great as that era was, and as great as he was, like the years preceding that, mm-hmm. I, I think he was even more dominant. You know, it's, he yeah. was a realistic MVP candidate in the two seasons before LeBron came to Miami, and and that's something that we kind of tend to forget because he didn't achieve any title success or anything like that. But he was the leading scorer in the NBA, and uh, he was always dominant and kind of helped me define what a superstar was in the sense that he was one of those guys that could change the course of a game uh, single-handedly, uh, you know, via his offense or his defense. And, uh, and that was fantastic to watch that evolution being the kind of young player that he was in 2003. I remember him getting drafted and I didn't really see him much in Marquette and I didn't really know what kind of a fit he was. And in fact, a lot of people forget that in his rookie year, he was coming off the bench because there was not a, a clear need for him. They had Eddie Jones as a starting shooting guard, and they had Rafer Alston as a starting point guard position. All these names that, I mean, nobody even remembers for the most part. And, and Dwayne was kind of a tweener because he's 6'4", and that's kind of generously listed, to be honest with you. And he wasn't quite a point guard, and that was more of the era of the bigger shooting guards. And so he didn't quite fit that mold either, so they kind of had him running the point. And he was coming off the bench, and then all of a sudden, that was the one year where Stan Van Gundy coached the Heat, and he led this team, and he had, he had no choice. He had to play Wade because he was just such a dominant offensive player and, and a capable defender as well, and, and that was amazing to watch. That rookie season, he had a great moment in the postseason there where he helped knock off uh, the Charlotte Hornets at that time, and that was that was really impressive. And, and then from that point, then they acquired Shaquille O'Neal, and of course they achieved championship success a couple seasons later. So that was always, a, it's, it's been a great career arc, and watching it evolve has been pretty, pretty special. Yeah, one of the greatest... Um one guy kind of carrying a team seasons that I can remember is Dwayne Wade in like 2009. Yeah. And just, oh my God, he was so good that year. Just an incredible yeah. season. Um, I'm, I've just never forgotten how good he was. And they only racked up, uh, what was it, 40-something, 40 45, 46 wins. Yeah, something like yeah that. still made the playoffs, though. I mean, Eric Spolster yeah. has pretty much always made the playoffs as, the, as a coach for the Heat. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, that was a that was a tough season to watch because you always kind of suspected that there was something in the works there. I don't think anybody expected the the big three to form the way it did, but you know they had all these one year contracts kind of setting up exactly for how it played out, and then they had Michael Beasley, and he wasn't yeah. quite living up to that high draft status as the number two overall pick, and, and it was just it was an interesting weird time for for Heat fans. Yeah, the living bucket, walking bucket, whatever it is. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, yeah okay. So. Anyways, I just wanted to go on the side of that because I know you uh, do a lot of Heat stuff and you're, of course, on Locked on Heat. So I just wanted to bring that up because I love Dwayne Wade, man, and I'm wishing the best for him this season and whatever's after. Uh, but today I wanted to mostly focus on a piece you wrote for uh, Step Back for Fansided called The Junior NBA World Championship is an Opportunity. Um, and it's, you know, the title's pretty self-explanatory that it's about the Junior NBA World Championship. And uh, you got a chance to, um, were you, did you go right into the, uh, were you there for all of it? It was like a week long, right? It was. It, it started off on Sunday, I want to say August 5th, if I'm not, not mistaken, and then it kind of carried on. That was the opening ceremony, and that continued on um, throughout the rest of the week, finishing up the following Sunday with the championship games. 
So I was there for most of it. There were a couple of days there where I wasn't able to, to cover the activities that they, they were engaged in because there was some off the court stuff that I wasn't necessarily you know, had access to. But for the most part, I was there. I saw all the action. It was, you know, as the piece kind of details, there were 300 some participants and, you know, 32 teams. So there were a lot of games playing out simultaneously so it's impossible to cover all of them the kind of way that you'd want to as far as the attention to detail but i tried my best to, to cover a lot of them from the opening event and then they had that they had like this great opening event a tip-off like a ceremonial tip-off as they called it with andre drummond and a, a couple the wnba president as well lisa borders i think mm -hmm. and you know they had this whole ceremony play out and kids from all over the world you know, coming off stage and there was a dance off at one point. It was very <laughs> peculiar. Um, and then from there, they kind of went to this parade down Main Street, USA and Disney World's Magic Kingdom. And, you know, these are kids that are in the United States for the first time for a lot of them. And, you know, even if the, the ones that are born here in the U.S., they might not necessarily have had access to Disney World. So they're there. And on top of that, they're walking in this parade in Disney World and they had access to all the rides and everything afterwards. And that was pretty cool. So I got a chance to go backstage as I was led into Disney World by uh, the Disney PR team in conjunction with the NBA PR staff and, and see how everything worked out and kind of kept to the side there until the parade started. It was it was a pretty cool, part, you know, pretty cool event overall. And I got a chance to see a lot of things that I didn't expect to see. That's awesome. Full disclosure, I've never been to Disney World or yeah. the other one, Disneyland. Disneyland. Disneyland yeah. Um, yeah, I've never been to either of them. Um, but I had no idea at all that ESPN had uh, a sports complex there, like just <laughs> yeah. buried in Disney. That's so weird to me. They just have like a sports complex buried in Disney World. Like, uh, I guess it gets used a lot because it's in Disney World. Well, Disney purchased ESPN and ABC, so that's uh, kind of a, a, right. a part of the great Disney Global Corporation. So they have this ESPN zone, uh, which is like a full-scale facility where they have like a, 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 the HP, you know, Hewlett-Packard, the HP Pavilion, where they have basketball games indoors, and they have multiple courts there. But they also have a full-scale baseball field, soccer field, and other type tournaments and stuff like that. They have an ESPN-themed restaurant there as well. And, of course, being Disney, they've got gift shops everywhere where you can purchase a lot of overpriced stuff. And, um, yeah, everything in Disney World is huge. Like, even me, who has been to Disney World, like, you've got your GPS going, and at some point, you're like, it's it's a 40-mile yeah, it's, it's a huge complex and it's just so big. It's easy to get lost as you're winding your way through all these roads there and everything's under construction because they're constantly expanding. And the ESPN zone is part of it. Um, it's just impressive. So you park here and then you've got to walk through in the Florida humidity and, and there's a good chance of rain as well. You got to walk like a quarter mile just to get to the, the, the basketball facility. Uh, but inside there, it was world-class all the way and it was a, a pretty interesting uh, event that's awesome that's really cool um so you kick off your piece with starting by focusing on the india team and uh, a player point guard in particular named i hope i get this right but dia kothari yeah, yeah um, that's it. I, I was just curious as to why out of all the people that were there because you mentioned there were so many people and this is during the parade where you start off um what stuck out about this moment and this particular player and um, the Indian team that 
you decided that this this is what I'm going to focus on to start off this piece? Well, because I kind of thought of the Indian team as being um, the the purest approach, having the purest approach to to the tournament. Um, they were the little engine that could, in the sense that they they got beat pretty easily. And almost every game they participated in, I think I wound up saying that they they lost by an average of 30-something points per game. They won one out of the, the kind of game, the, I think the five or six games that they actually played in over the course of the tournament, they only won one. Um, and, and that was a sheer fluke. They barely eked out a victory over South America, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And so you saw this, you know, this team, and they were clearly overmatched. Uh, that first game that I kind of talk about as well, uh, you know, they faced... Australia and this was a group that they 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 were great this is a girls team you know and maybe you know you could think that they might not be as prepared or anything like that but they were excellently coached um, by Travis Heal whose brother Shane actually played in the NBA and so his own daughter was the leading scorer for the Australian team and they just they were amazing and they had this well-coordinated a pick and roll attack and they were just driving 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 and the indian team was just so completely overmatched they were small the smallest team by far of any participant group there and and so the point guard dia herself she was the smallest player on the smallest team but at the same time seeing her at the parade and the, just this pure joy like i said before like the, the opportunity to be in the united states for the first time to be in disney world and you could just kind of see it wash over her face as she's taking in this moment that kind of stuck out to me. And and even though they were overmatched, I always saw them being very, very positive. Despite the losses, I even I think I mentioned it at some point that despite the losses, they were they just seemed so grateful to be there, to be invited to participate in this event. And after each game, they would shake hands from the opposing team. They would shake the scoring table, the scores at the scoring table. They would shake the referees' hands. And, you know, that's part of the coach telling them go and do this process. But they felt they fell in line and they did it. And and they seemed like again very grateful just to be invited to be there, even though they were losing by thirty something points. So that kind of that really stuck out to me. And uh, you know, that moment there in the parade, you know, as the smallest team, knowing in hindsight that they were going to get blown out it was this pure joy of being there this kind of optimistic hope uh and then that kind of you know that got dashed pretty quickly when they faced that australian team the next day but overall they still remain positive and it's about the hope of the opportunity of the tournament to be able to continue to grow the game uh in india and throughout the world so that that really stuck out and that's kind of why i started off in that yeah, which makes sense then why you uh, cycled all the way back to it at the end, of course. Um, that level of hope and humanity that was there um, displayed by that team and clearly how uh, uh, their coach, I believe, mentioned that uh, this is the first sort of step towards change in, in terms of gaining interest and maybe building yeah. some facilities and stuff in India that they don't have yet. Um, and just like on a purely you know human level and um, the you know, just the human part of sport, uh, that part's great. Um, and I think that's definitely, uh, uh, one of the, I think highlights of what this tournament is, even though as, um, you're very good at doing, there's more than just that to this tournament because of the corporate nature of it as well. And you also mentioned that, um, it wasn't that well attended, which, I was a little bit surprised about just because I felt like 
with the way like the world is now with how everything seems to be interconnected and we have eyes on people all the time you hear about it all the time with of course this is more in the states um but you know there'll be some kid who's you know 14 or something um they'll do some crazy dunk and then it's like it goes viral and then um there's all these focusing focusing on uh, players kids and and then there's that group of people that come out and they say you know let them be kids let them be young we don't need to focus on uh on them just quite yet so i'm kind of surprised that there weren't um just like a, a lot of people there just because that's the way things seem to be now that you got to know got to have eyes on everything yeah um and just that you know kids are being looked at so young now um for any sport um just to you know someone trying to pick out who's going to be elite um, which even though, you know, at that age, I, that's incredibly difficult. Um, so yeah, I was just, I was just a little surprised that that's the way that was. You know, it, it was, um, there, there were some elite type players there and there was in fact, a, a video that stemmed from the tournament where a 14 year old kid, um, that was like, you know, he was six foot five and built like a, a superstar athlete already. <laughs> uh, he did have an impressive dunk and during the, <laughs> Not during a game, although there there are certain there were there was even a girl that could uh, you know and I, I know that's not, I realize that sounds a little sexist, but at the same time I mean you don't really expect thirteen year old girls to be able to dunk, but there mm-hmm. was one that pulled off a dunk not in game but in, during a game. <laughs> Surprisingly, actually, uh, incidentally, it was against the Indian team. There was they were in, a, in the midst of a thirty point blowout in the third quarter, and this girl is calling out to her mom to make sure that her mom has her phone as she's practicing during a timeout to dunk the basketball and she pulls it off successfully. And the Indian girls are just like watching this with their jaws slack as they're, <laughs> I mean, these girls are like four feet tall and they're watching this girl extend to her full size and, and be able to dunk a basketball. They were, yeah. they were, it was so impressive, that kind of contrast there. But as far as the attendance is concerned, um, you know, I don't think there was a lot of quote unquote big names from this young group. And it was a lot of mm. parents and families and friends of that sort. Uh, you know, they had to pay their own way, right. which is another interesting part. The NBA paid for all the teams and the participants to fly out from wherever they were. But uh, they've also ponied up money for their hotel and paid for them to have access to the theme park. But as far as the families are concerned, they had to pay their own way. So that kind of makes it a little bit more difficult. And then talking to a lot of the family members that I did, um, they know the the deal more or less because they're involved in something similar through AAU. Um, and, and so they know where to kind of fish for the right deals and how to get a group discount and get, you know, a, a good price on flights and stuff like this. But still, you know, you got to take a week out in the middle of August for this uh, tournament, it, that's not easy to do, and, and so it's hard. And it did. You know, we had seen commercials. I'm sure you saw commercials during the NBA playoffs for this Junior NBA World Championship. Yep. And if you were anything like me, they were kind of just on in the background, and, and it didn't really sink through. You saw Dwayne Wade talking about the Junior NBA World Championship, and you're kind of go, "Huh, I wonder what that is." And then next thing you know, you're watching you know, the Golden State Warriors run roughshod on whoever they were running roughshod on, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it just didn't really kind of resonate, even though it had a TV presence. But, you know, this was all kind of after the fact. You see this there and there's extreme coverage. There were hours and hours of television coverage. But at the same time, I don't think a lot of people knew about the event ahead of time other than the families and friends of the people who were participating in it. So it's not like you were going to travel to Orlando 
specifically to watch some 13-year-old kid from Kansas City participate in this tournament. Uh, you know, again, without like a LeBron James Jr. or a Zaire Wade, you know, a bigger name as far as a younger player, I don't, I don't know that it kind of garnered that same level of attention and scrutiny. Um, and, and there was a whole process. There were like uh, regional tournaments throughout the United States and around the world for the team to be able to advance past to represent their specific regions and those kind of got some buzz online like you have some youtube videos and things of that sort but again it's mostly parents you know it's an aau tournament for the most part even though it's under the the nba brand and uh and you know those kinds of things you know they're, they're mostly watched by family you know you're, you're there to watch your kid you're, you're there to watch your nephew or niece and um, and I think that's still a state, even with the NBA brand and all the advertising and everything else that came into it, even even with the kind of billions of dollars behind the, 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 the whole tournament, it's still just a family affair. Yeah, and even uh, obviously despite that, the NBA, you mentioned, is committed to building this tournament up. Um, yeah. They see it as like an investment in youth basketball and um, future players, giving them pathways. Um Silver mentions that it's not fiscally driven, even though it's clear that there's the value of promoting the NBA brand. Um, right. It's just inherent in anything the NBA does. Um, do you expect this tournament to become more of a phenomenon in the future? Like, when you were there, did you feel like it had the seeds to grow into something special? Because clearly the NBA thinks so, and it's investing a lot into this. I don't think that they were immediately obvious. But again, as you pointed out, the, the NBA is committed to doing this. And, and if that's the case, they're going to make it a success because they can. You know, they'll get the right names attached to it. They'll continue to get kids to come there and they'll find a way of promoting it even more. And uh, and from that point, whether it means moving it, you know, maybe I think having it in Orlando is kind of a brilliant strategy because you can tie it together as far as like part of your family vacation. If you want to go and watch the tournament, that's great, but you can also take a trip to SeaWorld or Disney World or Universal Studios or one of the other theme parks in the area. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, they are absolutely committed. You know, they, they didn't specify if they were going to be moving the location. They were looking at other ways of continuing to expand it, and that's what the, uh, the, the vice president for the NBA, as far as a global outreach is concerned, that's what he explained to me. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know how the future of it takes place, but to me, I think they're going to continue to to have this tournament take place, and, and it will eventually be a success. How soon that is, I can't predict, but um, they're committed. They're absolutely committed, so it's it's going to be curious to see. Before then. I mean, I was lucky to be there for the inaugural event, but I wonder how much bigger it'll be. You know, the thing is, you know, a couple of years ago, even Summer League wasn't that big a deal, but now it's televised on NBA TV, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like this must-see event, and they, they figured out, you know what, get all 30 teams in Las Vegas, and you can guarantee 30 different fan bases will be plugged in and watching this whole event take place and they sell tickets and it's it's going to get to that point and even though it's 13 and 14 year old kids i think that we're starting to see that window grow bigger and bigger for the coverage as, as far as these kids developing and you, you hinted at that as well you know we're starting to see kids through the aau circuit get more and more hype and you know you're knowing where they're going to go into high school and from there where they're going to go into college or if they're going to go to college eventually and you know uh, I, I think we'll start to see much more hype about this tournament in, in future years. Yeah, and there's that obvious global appeal, too, that um, this tournament has that a, a lot of other ones don't. And yeah. um, you mentioned, too, there's uh, NBA academies that certain places have. Yeah. And um, 
most of the teams that came to the tournament uh, have these academies, and this tournament is sort of like a mix of that structured experience and then basketball without borders as well, which has proven successful for the NBA um, so far. So, yeah, do you think that's, do you think it was like, um, could you see the as a culmination, like bits and parts from each thing and like how it worked together? And was it, did you think that in, in that sense of um, the experience, was it successful that way? Um, yeah, what do you think about that? I don't know. Successful, yes, because you're, you're starting to see those seeds sprout. Uh, the NBA academies, you know, from from the, the perspective of, say, the Indian team, I, I don't know that they would have had that kind of organized team structure where they could have had a group represented in this tournament without the NBA academies. Right. They had an academy open recently, and in fact, um, Brooke Lopez, who was at the uh, Junior NBA tournament, he had gone over there, I think, earlier this summer to watch as that regional tournament took place in, in India and kind of establish a connection there with those kids and, and see how the game was starting to take root there. Uh, and so it provides the beginnings of a structure. And I think the tournament in Orlando is kind of a culmination of that structure, you know, a, a certainly a much more well-cemented version of what they're learning in these academies. And, you know, Africa has long been an area that's scouted. Um, and I think you start to see more and more. Like, there were a lot of kids on that Middle East slash African team that had, like, incredible length. And you could tell that they were just raw. They just haven't been through. One team, actually, the African team actually represented the boys in the in the global final versus uh, the central team representing the U.S. Hmm. And, and I thought they might be able to knock off the central team. But, it, you know, obviously the experience of the central boys who for the most part have been watching and playing the game since they were kids, you could see that kind of take hold there. Although there is an incredible amount of talent on those African teams. There were a couple kids there and I was talking to Steve Clifford about it. You know, the, the kids have such incredible length and you could see kind of like the roots of a, a Giannis Adetokounmpo coming from this. You know, I know that's, that's some pretty grandiose expectations, but they have this incredible length where they're taking two steps and just gliding to the basket. And these are 13 year old, 14 year old kids in some cases. And, and it's right. impressive to see. So again, they're learning the game at these academies. Uh, it's helping to establish the brand in places where that brand might not be established. And then from there, these players have the beginnings of a dream where they might be able to make it in the NBA. And that's the ultimate goal. And, you know, that was one of the things I was able to talk to the Australian coach about is that you think, and you know, obviously you tend to think American kids, they go through this AAU circuit and that represents a lot of bad and a lot of good, depending on who you ask. And, you know, their goal is to be able to make a lot of money by getting into the league. And I talked to the Australian coach and he was like, you know, that's the same goal for us, too. These girls want to participate. They want to be able to go into a college. They want to get a scholarship here in the States. They want to be able to go on and play in the WNBA and, and get a career going. And, and so that's why the tournament is a great opportunity for them. Yeah, definitely. Like they clearly um, this tournament doesn't have to worry as much about establishing basketball in the United States because of right. the amateur athletic union. And uh, you mentioned that all 16 of those U S teams in the tournament were part of the union. Yeah. Um, I just wanted, to, I was just curious about like your general thoughts on the union. Cause obviously that's a bit a larger discussion um, yeah. overall, but just like, 
just briefly, like, because you mentioned both angles of it, and I think it's important even here, um, you know, about the exploitive nature, potentially, of, um, of the AAU, uh, and also the opportunities it offers in terms of finding a pathway to fulfilling a dream, and you mentioned both because I, both angles are important, I think, but just in terms of you personally, like, which, do you lean one way or the other, or you're just kind of open-minded to both um, both directions and so what, what do you think there? It's, it was tough to, to kind of pin down and I know that seems very vague. Um, but you know, there AAU and I think Adam Silver to his credit, he wound up saying it pretty well too, that, you know, AAU means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, uh, it's, it's hard to narrow it down because there are some very good programs and there are some that are pretty bad. Certainly, there is an exploitative nature there where, you know, you've got uncles and aunts and uh, coaches, quote unquote coaches, you know, that aren't necessarily legitimate coaches kind of taking these kids under their wing and making sure that they continue to grow as a player and and make it tie their their wagons to these players in the hopes that someday they'll be able to make money. Look, we saw that situation kind of played out with Kawhi Leonard. I mean, this is a coach who's been a longtime mentor of, of, of Leonard's and while he's an actual you know member of the family I mean there's been a, a, a lot of people who have commented on the fact that he's tied his, his wagon to Kawhi and is trying to get the most out of Leonard and, and be a part of that entourage and everything that that entails so mm-hmm. I think you start to see the roots of that at the AAU circuit so it's hard to it's hard to say because then from the kid's perspective, it's like, well, look, I don't care. I just want to play basketball. Right. My goal is to make it into the NBA through whatever means necessary. And if that means kind of selling out a little bit in the AAU and, and, and making sure, you know, if my uncle or whomever, my coach or whomever is, is putting me in a position to succeed, well, I'll, I'll take it. And so that's why the tournament was kind of, uh, you know, it followed that same similar path. From the NBA's perspective, they're kind of stepping in and saying, well, we're going to clean up what amateur basketball is because we're going to establish the NBA brand as the go-to um, for, for all kind of uh, amateur athletics. You know, They're partnering with USA Basketball and the NCAAs to create a template where coaches are going to receive certification and where NBA techniques – both on and off the floor as far as mindfulness and mental health and everything else like that plays a part in, in getting these kids to, to reach their fullest potential. Uh, and for the NBA, that works out because then they get to be able to get a whole new crop of really, really good players that are capable of reaching the NBA level. And from the players, well, you know, you want to already be on the radar for the NBA so that you can continue to achieve your dream, whether it's realistic or not the opportunities there and you want to be able to put yourself in the best position to make the most of that opportunity. So where do I fit on that? And that's a long winded answer. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I I kind of wish that it was a little bit better run. And I guess from that perspective, I like that the NBA is getting involved, but I can't help but, you know, see that the NBA has their, their, their greedy mitts involved and they're already positioning themselves to, to make the most of this opportunity. And I kind of got in hot water with NBA PR about this. I probably shouldn't even talk about it, but, you know, I don't care. Um, they were not happy with the, the tone of the piece because they thought it kind of shed some light on what they were doing and then they didn't want that necessarily exposed. They, they thought of themselves being a lot more wholesome 
and their involvement in the tournament being somewhat more pure. Uh, and I didn't quite see it that way. Like there was that opportunity, but you know, there's there's also an opportunity to make a whole heck of a lot of money too. And so that I felt like that was necessary to point out in the piece, and, and I hope I did that justice. Yeah, nuance, David. What are you doing with that? I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> uh, people hate nuance nowadays. Um, but yeah, no. See, well, okay. So you even mentioned there's an anonymous NBA player who yeah he. Um, it just his initial reaction uh, it was just that he just didn't care much for the tournament because it's connected to AAU. And I, I have to assume that's because, like, in some way he was bitten by that system in the past. And so just, you know... Well, not, not, if that came through, then that was a mistake on my part because it okay. wasn't that he had a problem with the tournament. Okay. He had a problem with the differentiation, which is one of the lines of questioning that I went in there trying to see... Why is this different than the AAU? Uh, and so okay. I asked every player, the NBA commissioner and, and vice president, and everybody that I could have got a chance to talk to how this kind of separated from AAU. And for the most part, it was all this kind of rhetoric of, oh, no, no, it's the NBA brand. You know, it's about off the court involvement, community involvement, and learning all these different things off the floor, et cetera, et cetera. And then this one guy, you know, off the record was like, no, this is AAU. And so what if it is? You know, it's like uh, okay. I, he, he, he just wants to he's the one that pointed out that it, for the kids, it's an opportunity. And so this mm-hmm. is just another one, you know, and they're going to take advantage of it and they should take advantage of it because their goal is to make it into the league. And so you do whatever you have to to make that dream a reality. And if this tournament helps, well, do it. Use the system the way the system winds up using you more often than not. Right. And I think, I mean, look, there, there's some stuff um, you touched on that, like, that there are important, I think, that the, the NBA feels are important. It's instilling its own values into this tournament as it, you know, um, continues to grow its own brand and establish its own brand. And David uh, Kruczewski, the NBA vice president, um, he was talking about, uh, you know, committing to those ideals. Um, and that's yeah. why he felt that this tournament was um you know set apart from all other tournaments and that their focus on things like mental health and mindfulness and even uh diet keeping your body in shape and even social media um a lot of off-court stuff like that that all of this is important and our life lessons and you know in general that's good like that's that's good stuff um but i wonder does any of that become a little a little dry under the just the spotlight of all the corporate stuff yeah that's certainly how it felt like to me uh you know again these kids you want them to learn these lessons and that's something that you just said and i hinted at in the piece as well like it's important for life lessons to be learned however they can be and so this tournament did help in that but it's also you know under the umbrella of the nba brand and so it's kind of hard and and i mentioned it kind of became like this this really quick rhetoric that you could dish out whenever the question was asked about what was different about this tournament it was oh off the court commitment off the court's commit commitments and stuff like that and it's just kind of hard to see that that they're really embracing these policies other than well we just kind of have to do it because we're participating in this tournament so we we just kind of have to fall in line like they even had one a community day where they went to a nearby park and in conjunction with the city of Kissimmee, which is near Orlando, they built a park and, you know, planted and resawed areas and, you know, kind of helped build a playground for the kids of that community. And, and that's great 
That's great, uh, but at the same time, I mean, if you're a 13, 14-year-old kid playing, you know, X, X amount of hours of basketball the day before or the day after, you don't really want to wake up at 7 in the morning so you can go build a park, you know? It's not like they're doing it by choice. They're kind of doing it because they have to. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's kind of hard to, to, to kind of see whether or not they're really embracing these things because they want to or because they're being told that they should do it. Um, you know, again, it, it's it's... It's nuanced. I know it's it's tough uh, in this day and age, but it's the reality of, is that you know they're learning good things, but they're kind of forced to learn these good things, and so it's hard. You know, and, and again, I got more and more hot water about that when I called the NBA somewhat cultish, and and mm. um, the responses from all the players that I talked to and, and and staff I talked to because it just it was just it struck me as so funny that that was the go-to response about what separates this tournament from the AU is like well we've got the NBA brand and off the court commitments and we're teaching all these things in addition to just basketball it's like okay but you know are are you doing it for your own good or are you doing it because you know you kind of have to and you're trying to set yourself up as this kind of beacon of light in, a, in an otherwise dark amateur circuit, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to say whether or not their heart was in the right place and maybe it should have been. And, you know, that's, that's something that was pointed out to me. It's like, well, the NBA is ultimately a business. And, and so kind of expecting them to be a, a, a barometer for morality isn't appropriate, but then they kind of cast themselves in that same light. And so mm-hmm. you kind of have to call them on that, you know, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Oh, there's that difficult line that um, they're always going to be walking, and I'm not sure that it's ever going to change because that's just kind of the nature of being a large corporate entity, but also you know trying to uh, to do what they can to seem um, you know to be pointing people, especially kids, in the, the right moral direction. Right. Um, you mentioned too that um, Swin Cash and D Wade, a couple of legends, were there. D Wade's obviously yeah. a global ambassador. I'm not sure. Does Cash have a uh, like a title or something connected to the? She idea? wasn't. I think she was not a global ambassador. It was Candace Parker who was supposed to be on the women's side as far as the the global ambassadorship, but she wasn't able to do to attend for some kind of scheduling conflict. So, so Cash, I think, was just there as a former NBA WNBA legend rather and. Um, so she was actually there with her family and again, you know, the, the NBA flies you out there, you get to go to a theme park for a couple of days. It's, it's all good. Yeah, for sure. And they were both talking about, um, balancing the game with business as well. And I think cash her quote, um, which is use the game. Don't let it use you. I think that's one of the most like poignant, um, points just, you know, to, to summarize it in a short kind of two sentences, um, that's really important uh, for for kids, especially now. Like Wade mentioned, um, these days, like it seems to be much easier. Again, maybe as part of social media and stuff, but like for yeah. talented and um, already elite level kids to acquire stuff like brands and um, yeah. brand items and packages and things like that, and they go out and they're already. Um, you know, either wittingly or unwittingly putting themselves into um, a form of business. They're putting their game on display as a business. And, you know, there's certain periods in players' lives where some of them maybe felt like they didn't realize all this stuff until too late or um, they just wish they'd thought about it earlier. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about just... I guess just just that in general about the the words from former players saying like 
I know you're a kid, but you should, you got to think about this stuff because if you're not careful, um, you know, these corporate entities are going to use you instead of you being able to use your love for the game to get exactly what you want, where you want to go. Yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so it's kind of good to have these experienced voices pass on those lessons to kids. And, and you know, I think we all as fans, even us as media, want to be able to view the sport through this kind of rose-colored, naive lens. Uh, and that's just unrealistic. Uh, you know, the, the reality is, and we hear it mentioned all the time to the point where it's become cliched. Obviously, players are, are very, very keen on always repeating, this is a business, this is a business. So, it, you know, from that perspective, they recognize the business aspect of it. Um, fans don't want to see that. Unfortunately, they want to believe that players are loyal, that there's loyalty in the game from both the front office and from the players themselves. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's not realistic. Nope. They're there to make money. And so in learning these lessons at an early age uh, can be important and, and should be taught, I think, uh, because, you know, I think you see that from any career path that any kid goes on, you know, that they want to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer What's the point of that? They're not becoming a doctor or a lawyer or engineer necessarily for the sake of helping humanity, although that could be an offshoot of that. Mm -hmm. They're probably looking at it because it's a lucrative, well-paying career. And so that same approach could be used when they're going to basketball. Um, from the older player's perspective, I think Wade made a really, really good point about saying that, you know, he played through high school, college, and his first few years in the pros kind of with that same naive lens where he was just like, I love the game. I love playing it. It's great. Uh, and then he got hurt in his fourth season, fifth season, uh, out for the year to a shoulder injury. And then he realized, man, I, I could have it all taken from me from one second to the next. And how many cases of that do we see where a player gets hurt in college, uh, you know, playing football in particular, playing basketball in some cases, and, and they risk their livelihood so that they could stay for this institution that is making billions by exploiting younger players. So. I think it's important for those players to realize they should take some of that power back. They should have the control over how their careers play out. And if that means accepting gifts from large corporations like Nike and Adidas and others, I mean, why not? You know, it's important to, to get what you can while you can. And and so they've, they're learning this lesson at an early age. And from a kid's perspective, they're probably just great. You know, they're happy to get a box of Nikes and some Nike gear, and that makes a lot of, a lot of people a lot very happy. Um, but it's, you know, you're already starting to align yourself with this global business corporation. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's that's the pathway that you kind of have to take so that you can continue to make this a career and, and get the most out of it while you can. Yeah, I, I this is why I think players um, in general should never be um, you know, criticized or mocked or made fun of for acquiring any sort of deal that they can get. Um, yeah. You know, like everybody made fun of one of the most famous ones in recent memory anyways, you know, when Carmelo's deal in New York. Um, he got a ton of money and I think that was great. Like if that's what he wanted to do, everybody made fun of him for saying, not everyone, but a lot of people criticized him for not apparently wanting to win, um, not going to a place where he had a better chance to win. But, you know, look, he made a decision. He made a decision that he thought was right for him. He was able to, um, you know, leverage a deal that paid him that much money. And yeah. that's a big deal. Um, I think a lot of people would take that option over just 
um, over just you know going somewhere else and being paid less well, to maybe have a chance to win. And, and I know that you know this as, as somebody who covers the you know the NBA in general, but it's like what other career do these fans or what, what careers are these fans involved in where they'd be willing to take less money for the sake of their company? Like yeah, who exactly. does that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you, you know, it's like, oh, we expect these players to, to have different levels of morality where they're willing to take less money so that the team could build a better group around that, you know, individual player uh, so that they can compete for a title as this, it's like a pure goal you know, for the sake of winning, where you sacrifice yourself for the sake of victory. But in the meantime, you know, whoever owns this team or the the global corporation of the NBA is making a whole hell of a lot of money off of these players by exploiting them. So I think that's kind of unfair. So, you know, we, we need to ha- kind of change that perception. We need a, a definite paradigm shift. Um, and, you know, we need to be able to understand that these are people first and foremost, and if they can get whatever they can get out of this job, they should do so. And it's unfortunate that we kind of expect them to live under this different moral guidance than what we implement in our own lives. Uh, and I and I think that's where, you know, you kind of see start to see some of these lessons being passed down to these younger players at the junior NBA tournament. Yeah, definitely. The goalposts always move to anyway. It doesn't really matter. Oh, yeah. I mean, like everybody saw what happened with Kevin Durant. He's, you know, he went to Golden State. He's not making as much money as he possibly could, um, but he went to win. And he's been right. winning, and it doesn't matter because fans are now mad that he's winning. So, whatever. Um, I did want to mention as well. Uh, get in, well, get into uh, just the writing aspect of this because this is one of my favorite parts of these podcasts where we actually talk about the actual um, just the writing process in general. Everybody's is different, um, and there's different pieces that people write and. Uh, I'm always interested in seeing like their thoughts on those in general. So this in particular is a long form piece, a feature. Um, are these your favorite types of stories to write? Do they feel more rewarding? Uh, I know a lot of people who write these uh, types of stories uh, who have the opportunity to do so. They say that they're their favorites because, you know, you, you get a chance to paint a picture a little more. You have yeah. uh, usually leeway to write longer um, obviously long form so writing longer pieces but you know they can be up to you know however long the, your editor allows them to go on for so you just have opportunity to be able to put more in there than maybe you would with something else that you would like to put in there so yeah how do you feel about writing these i i i uh i you know i can't i gravitate towards long form um in fact this was a much shorter draft of what i had originally written uh, and even that longer draft was, I think, somewhere around, I want to say, 3,500 words or so. Yeah. And even that cut out so much of what I wanted to include because, again, it was – with this kind of tournament, there was just so much going on. Not just the business aspect, not just the kids kind of playing the game itself, not just the events kind of filtering around the event itself, but the parents, the family members. There were so many stories that I saw play out over the course of, of that week of basketball that, I mean, I don't know that I could necessarily have written a book about it, but I mean, at least a good 5,000 words on, on this tournament and everything that it encompassed. And, and, you know, I, I honestly, that wouldn't have worked because I don't think anybody read this piece anyway, and they would have certainly not read it at 5,000 words. But, um, you know, for me, you hinted at it perfectly. I think it does, you want to write a little bit more and you want to tell a bigger, fuller story. And, and so that's the the process for me. I, I, I try not to think of word count, 
you know, when I'm going into it, I want to tell the story as best I can. And I, I mean, you know, I think like most writers, I kind of beat myself up over the finished product and I never think that I wind up telling the story half as well as I should, but I just, I just go in there, try to, and make it as detailed as possible and try to hit on all points. And, you know, I work with the, a good editor and Ian Levy up at Fansided that, you know, is, is very good about helping to shape the narrative and he had given me some guidance beforehand i'm lucky also in that he's not very quick with the red pen it's not like he cuts a lot of it out you know he's, he's mostly gone to this point of saying well i tweaked a word here and there and that's about it um so i was very you know i'm fortunate to be able to work with somebody like ian but yeah definitely the the long form is more appealing because of that that storytelling nature and uh you know, there, there were so many stories that I wanted to be able to tell as many of them as possible and give as much detail as possible. And, and so it had to be, in my opinion, a long form piece. Yeah. Do you find long form like um, to that nature, like more fun just in general when you're writing? Because obviously, like there are pieces that people write, I think that they if they're work, uh, writing for a place that, you know, has requirements of what you're supposed to be writing, you know, like set X number of articles per month or something. And sometimes right. those articles aren't necessarily things that you're like super thrilled about to write. Um, and you just kind of do them, um, going through the motions, but then these are the sorts that usually I think people say like, this is my jam. This is the stuff that I actually, I have fun, um, doing it as I'm going through the process, I'm enjoying it. Um, I mean, even for myself, like I, anything I get to write where I get to use as many adjectives as possible and, uh, putting a little poetry into my prose. Like I love that. Anything that gives me the leeway to do that. Um, that's partly why I write about the Raptors of Raptors Republic because they encourage that sort of thing. Um, I, stuff like that makes me happy. So is, is it an, a joyful process for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's look, it's, it's torturous also. Like I said, I, sure. I kind of tend to beat myself up, but that's probably just more my attitude in general about my writing. And, uh, you know, I, it's always challenging for me. I always wonder whether or not somebody's going to be able to appreciate what it is, but as far as the writing, I mean, I've done it, I've done, I, I feel like I've done everything that you can possibly do as far as basketball writing from game recaps to player previews to film breakdown, you know, I, I've, I've tackled it. I've, I've done sliders, you know, mm -hmm. the typical things that you have to when you work at any kind of out, outlet as a freelance writer. So I'm, I'm pretty experienced in that. And although those kind of, you know, you can have some leeway, as you hinted at, as far as being able to explore some topics, you can't dive into them as fully as you would in a long form piece. So for me, it just it gives me much more leeway, uh, much more freedom to explore a topic. And, and certainly with language, I think that's a big part of it. I, I think. Um, if there's a criticism, and I've heard this before from others, maybe my my language could be a little bit over the top or floored, maybe not like a Ethan Sherwood Strauss, but uh, you know, not too far off. And and so I need to tone it down because yeah. I can I can get caught up and 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 wanting to hear my own voice so completely that I lose sight of telling the story. So that's that's a challenge for me. Mm, that's interesting. The ch telling the story bit is interesting. I always get a little concerned when someone I've had comments about this before. Um, from readers saying, you know, in terms of just um, your writing style or your voice needs to be toned down because, you know, why use a $5 word when a five cent one will do? Right. And I don't subscribe to that at all. I think, I don't think you should have to be writing down for an audience. I understand that um, realistically there are places where, you know, they'll tell you that this is, you know, this is part of the job. You have to do this. Um, as much as I can, I tend to ignore that because, 
uh, maybe it's just like the English major part of me, but I mean like that's what reading is for. Reading is for learning new words, reading is for um, experiencing other people's voices and their way of writing and telling stories. And I think that's important because, you know, that's just, that's what words are for. We all get to use the same ones and we all just get to put our sentences together and it's just how we do that and how we um, use them to tell our own unique perspectives. And I think that's really important in terms of uh, just writing in general. Um, you're very objective in this piece, very uh, as we mentioned before in your storytelling here, which I think is a hallmark of a good writer, especially in things like sports and news and stuff like that. Um, but is it difficult sometimes, you know, like I'm sure there are things about uh, like the AAU, for example, that you feel like you could just go in on and be like, well, this, this is clearly not good. Or um, on the other side of things, just you know, there's a lot of humanness and humanity that you mentioned, especially to near the end of the piece. That is, is it difficult as well not to just get all gushy about that kind of stuff and say this is this is what this does, and uh, here's all the great things it brings about. Well, it kind of it, the tournament lent itself to that level of objectivity for me, and that it was really the best of both worlds, the best and worst of both worlds, in that sense that you, you saw. The global corporatization of it and the money-making aspect, the, the exploitative nature perhaps, but there's also incredible humanity. There was a woman there who had traveled, I can't remember where from exactly now, but she had traveled there just to see her, her grandson participate. And she was talking about that parade and and she, her, her eyes were welling up with tears as she was talking about her grandson from whatever town they were from walking hand in hand or by, you know, playing against kids from China and Canada and all over the world. And, and just that idea that we could all come together and be a part of something bigger than us, you know, and, and, and through the umbrella of, of the game itself. And, and that's it's kind of hard not to see the best and worst of it when you see that kind of level of humanity, as you hinted at. And, uh, you know, I, I don't. I know I kind of. I could. I also wanted to go with that kind of approach of look. I don't want to burn any bridges with the NBA, and I wound up getting in hot water anyway. They wound up uh, not being very happy with the piece and the way it came out. I think they wanted more of a, a fluff piece that focused almost solely on on that gushy uh, human aspect of it rather than the the business aspect of it. But I, I wanted to share both because you know, and I, I felt. Kind of like that's why I hinted at the business side of it first, because it, look, it's important to see that these kids are getting used. But from the players perspective, particularly, you know, guys or players like Cash and, and Wade, you know, they're using the game for their own benefits. But then there's also the love of the game from Wade. You know, he, he's an experienced veteran. Uh, you know, he's seen it all in the league. He's made millions and millions of dollars, but he's there. And there was a breakaway dunk during a course of a game where he just kind of went, ooh, and you could see him ball his hands up into fists and draw them into his face and then pull his son towards him with an arm around his shoulder and just point at that play. And you could see this great paternal relationship where he's just, you know, they love the game and they love these plays just like any fan would. So that that kind of stuff is special to see. And, and so that's why I felt like it was important to kind of show both sides of it. And so I don't know... Maybe from another person's perspective, maybe they wouldn't have seen it, but I saw both sides and I, I thought it was important to show that balance in the piece and, and I hope I did it some justice. Definitely, I think so. I think it's I think it's pretty pretty clear that that was um, intentional in your piece to try and be as objective as possible and I'm not sure how someone could really read it and not see that you uh, give justice to both sides. 
one last writing question quickly here. I want to, I like to, I love to ask guests this. Do you have any particular writing quirks? Uh, wow. Um, you know, I don't know that I do. I don't know that I do. Honestly, I, I feel like I, I probably had more when I first started writing about basketball. I, I kind of just tend to lock myself up and, 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 you know, take a moment every once in a while where I just step back from the piece. Mm-hmm. And I, I read aloud to myself a lot. I don't know if that's a quirk or not because I just I want to hear if that voice comes through, if what I'm saying makes sense. And so it's just something where I write a few lines out, kind of read it and see whether or not it fits within the, the overall flow of the piece. Uh, other than that, I don't I don't know if, you know, I'm curious, what are some of the other quirks that some writers have told you about? Because I don't know, I may have them and not even realize that they're quirky. Yeah, I mean, there are some that are, like, mostly it's about, like, f- interestingly enough, it's where they, like, physically are or what they're physically doing. Like, some need to be writing uh, while sitting down or some need to be lying down, like, on their stomach oh. or something. Um, some need to be listening to music. Some need to write in silence. Um, I always need a glass of water beside me. I can't write without it. Um, <laughs> yeah, weird things like that. Okay. Well, in that case, I mean, I, yeah, I, I sit in my office. Uh, I have a, a two-story house, and I sit upstairs in my office, and I, I sit there and in silence. I used to write like if it's a gamer or you know some some kind of piece that it doesn't involve a lot of thinking. Maybe I could have music in the background, mm-hmm. but for some type of feature like this, like I said, I, I'd want to be able to to read things out loud and, and hear that they make sense. And so music doesn't necessarily work. It's not conducive for me to, to express myself that way. Um, yeah, I, I'm sitting at my computer reading aloud for most of the time. And, uh, you know, and then I, I go through that a couple of different versions too. Like every draft, I read it out loud. Then I cut something out, read it again, write it again. And it's, it's that can get kind of exhaustive. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know. To me, to me, I thought that was a pretty normal process, but now that you mention it, it might be somewhat quirky. I don't know. I, I guess a lot of people are comfortable listening to music. I'm not one of them. Yeah, I, I like asking those questions because like, every writer has their own like just way of doing it because it's just the way they develop and the way they've always been doing it. And then they realize that maybe someone else does the same thing or does something completely opposite. And they're like, wow, yeah. that's either really weird or, hey, I do that, um, yeah. which is kind of cool. Um yeah, I, I want to thank you again for coming on, David. I really appreciate it. Um, it was awesome to have you on, to have you uh, talk about this article. We'll definitely have you on again. Um, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Well, you know, they can continue to listen to me via Locked on Heat. Uh, we're gearing up for the season. I'll be going to Media Day next week. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll have a, a big season preview launching for our online patrons. So that's something to look out for. But I've got a couple pieces in the work. One on the Heat. And they're kind of superstarless uh, team and the way they've assembled this group and and also something on the Timberwolves where I was lucky enough to be in the, the locker room last year and kind of see some of the strife that we're seeing play out now. So hopefully I'll be able to get that done sometime soon if I make the time for it. Awesome. Um, yeah, so you'll be able to find the Writer's Right podcast on Anchor.fm or the Anchor app if you have it. It's also now available on Apple Podcasts, so you can go find it there. You can follow the podcast on Writer's Right Pod on Twitter, 
uh, and I will post links to the episodes as well as to my guest articles. And until then, you can follow me, as always, at Howvolution on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic, occasionally at B-Ball Breakdown, and Scene Creek as well. So thank you for listening, and enjoy your day. Thank <laughs> you.